the best way to start is to become friends with a major tenant. And if you're just starting out, I think you become friends with, say, 7-Eleven or Dutch Bros here in Northern California, or a little regional, small tenant. And you befriend them and you say, gee, 7-Eleven, I'd like to work with you here in Northern California. Where would you like to go? Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I want to introduce to you Ash Patel. He's a full-time commercial real estate investor. He's going to be doing the interview today and a lot of them moving forward. I'm still going to be doing interviews, just not as many. And he is going to ask tough questions while still building rapport. That way it's not awkward. He's a good friend of mine. Join me in welcoming Ash Patel. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm here with today's guest, John McNellis. John is joining us from Palo Alto, California. John, how are you today? I'm great, thanks. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. John is a partner in McNellis Partners and has been very active in real estate for 40 years. He has built over 80 projects. John, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. The deep background, I was a journalism major in college. I ended up in law school because I didn't know what to do with my life and I didn't want to be a newspaper reporter. Got out of law school, discovered quickly that I hated the practice of law. Just happened by sheer luck to be working for a law firm that had a real estate practice. I shifted over to becoming a business lawyer and after a few years of doing that, decided, whoa, it's a lot more fun being the business guy than the lawyer. So gradually, over the course of seven or eight years, I shifted from practicing real estate law to becoming a full-time developer. And again, sheer luck or coincidence, I had an older partner who was a accomplished shopping center developer. So I started when I was about 29 in, this, in the shopping center development business, and that's where I've been for quite a while. So John, where it says 80 projects, what are projects? Great question. For us, first, uh, we only build here in Northern California within about a two-hour drive. Somebody called me a part two developer, meaning that I wouldn't drive more than two miles. <laughs> <laughs> For us, the projects are 10 acres of dirt in the path of growth in a new town. And on that 10 acres, we'll build roughly a 100,000-foot shopping center, a Safeway or Albertsons, a Longs or a CVS, McDonald's, Bank, typical what we call barbell shopping center. That has a big anchor on one end, a thin row of shops, and then an anchor on the other. The other thing, that because here in Northern California, obtaining entitlements is difficult. That's good and bad news. It's bad if you're trying to get something built. It's good if you own something because the drawbridge is up, right? So one of the things we figured out 30 years ago was that a lot easier to get entitlements or permits if you were tearing down an old broken down shopping center and replacing it. So probably more than half of our projects were teardowns and renovations as opposed to a greenfield development. You're in an elusive world that not many people know about. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Where do you start when you want to build a hundred thousand square foot shopping center? Let's take the land one first. How do sure. you identify land that you could build on? Retail is a very tricky business, actually, like hotels. 
it's not something you can really dabble in. You really need to specialize in it. The best way to start is to become friends with a major tenant. And if you're just starting out, I think you become friends with, say, 7-Eleven or Dutch Bros here in Northern California or a little regional, small tenant. And you befriend them and you say, gee, 7-Eleven, I'd like to work with you here in Northern California. Where would you like to go? And if they like you and they think you're competent, they'll say, well, Ash, we'd really like to be in Middletown. And you say, okay, and then you run around and you find a site. And then as you're tying it up, you call the tenant back and say, okay, I found the site at first in Maine. How's this look? And they say, yeah, actually, it works for us. Half the time or more, they say, no, that doesn't work because of something. But in my world, you're getting the tenant at the same time you're getting land. What we don't do, we don't buy a piece of dirt on spec with no prospects on it. That's a good way to go broke in my business. And I started when I was in my late 20s. I had an older partner who was about 15 years older, and he was an accomplished developer. And he had a relationship with Safeway in the case of our first shopping center. So the first called adult project I did, we knew Safeway wanted to be on this site. That's how we did it. And that's pretty much always the case. The great part about retail, as opposed to pretty much any other real estate discipline, is you work with the same people over and over again. The real estate reps in a given area, they may change. They may go from Starbucks to Safeway to Walmart, but they don't tend to leave the area because their value to the tenants is in their geographic knowledge. It's hard to go from Palo Alto to Cincinnati. If you plot me down there, it would take me a while to get my bearings to figure out where the good corners were to build a grocery store and so on. So people tend to stay in the same place. The benefit there is you do repeat deals over and over again. So there's, if not a collegiality, uh, there's certainly a familiarity. And the more deals you do, the easier it gets. John, I've always wondered, why don't these companies from as small as 7-Eleven to as large as a Kroger or Safeway, why don't they just hire you and bring you in-house and capitalize on the real estate upside? The answer is that I wouldn't do it. (laughs) They do that, actually. But if you're really good as a developer, why would you ever take, I'll make up numbers, why would you ever take $200,000 a year or $150,000 a year when with just a little bit of luck, you could make 10 times that if you were a principal? So the best guys, guys who are really good at this, they would never consider doing that. They would never consider working as a consultant The mediocre guys, the ones who failed as a developer, they're happy to take that job. But there's a reason that they're mediocre and there's a reason they fail. They're not that good at it. But over and over again, tenants, let's say 7-Eleven, if the developer is buying the dirt, building it and selling it instantly, and there's a fair bit of profit in that, a company like 7-Eleven could say, gee, we should do that ourselves and keep the profit. But real estate development is tough. It is really hard. It takes a lot of perseverance, a lot of effort. And the companies usually figure out it's not worth it. They usually say, screw it. (laughs) Let Osh or John make the profit on the deal. It's too much brain damage. We just want shovel-ready stores. All right. So it's people like you that make this look easy. So (laughs) I I have to ask you, you said that you don't do spec deals. Why not take a high-traffic road? where you could see the development coming to a particular corner, why not just buy it on spec and then shop it out to a whole bunch of different retailers? 
if your audience is starting out, don't do that. <laughs> that is too risky. It looks you, easy, though. If you're in my position, and let's say you're playing with the house's money, you say, oh, we don't care. We'll park a couple million here on this dirt. We know something good's going to happen. You're right. You make more money that way. If you're running with a tenant the way I described earlier, they're going to expect that you give them a much better deal. If, on the other hand, you step up and you buy the corner of No and Brainer <laughs> and, and you own it, then you can write your own ticket. But the problem, Ash, if you have loose cash sitting around, we're all getting put your thumb and forefinger together. We're getting 0% in the bank, right? Everybody is. So you can say, well, screw it. I've got this cash sitting here. I'll buy this dirt. Well, first, you've got to pay property taxes. Then you have to pay pretty much. I'm sure it's true in Ohio as well as California. You have to pay to have it dissed or, or the weeds cut a couple times a year or the fire department comes after you. And you have to buy liability insurance. So if you can pay all cash, let's say it's a million dollar piece of property and you've got a million in cash sitting there earning zero and you don't need that million to eat and you can take the risk. Sure, that's not a bad thing to do. And we have done that. And we've done quite well with that approach. But that's not a rookie play. You've got to work your way up out of rookie ball, single A, double A, maybe double A, triple A before you start doing that kind of stuff. Because it can go wrong on you. You may not get the zoning. I'd feel a lot more comfortable about that if I had two tenants that I knew really liked the site. If you only have one, <laughs> then... If you own it, they know you own it, and they know, you, particularly if you borrowed money. Here's a takeaway for your audience. Never borrow money to buy raw land. <laughs> we bought a piece of raw land just the way you described it in 2012, coming out of the last downturn. We bought it as a foreclosed property from a bank. It took us eight and a half years to build a shopping center there. Now, we paid all cash for it. It didn't matter. But a young developer who has a financial partner, who has a big loan on it, would have been taken under by the eight and a half years of interest carry on the loan yeah, or with a financial partner. That's valuable advice because I think a lot of us, we see that corner that was undeveloped. All of a sudden there's a for sale sign, somebody buys it. And then there's a Starbucks and a Chipotle and a Walgreens there. And you think, man, why didn't I do that? How not the move. that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes they go really well and sometimes not so well. But yeah, well, thank you. Cause you probably just saved me from making some mistakes. Cause again, it just seemed like an easy thing to do. So you talked about the new development. What about redeveloping old shopping centers? Is that typically a teardown, a facade improvement? Great question. So when I was a kid, supermarkets were 25 to 30,000 feet and there were any number of shops. There was a floral shop. There was a Chinese restaurant. There was a bank a ton of little shops. What's happened across the country is that supermarkets have grown and grown and grown. And you know this, they have an in-house bakery, in-house bank, in-house Starbucks, in-house Chinese restaurant. So there are fewer tenants out there. So back to that barbell shopping center, let's say it's 100,000 feet. The old center might have a 30,000 foot market, 30,000 feet or 40,000 feet of shops, and then a drugstore. Well, if it's worn out, you can't fill up all those shop spaces. And you couldn't before the 2009 crash. You couldn't before the virus. The number of shops out there are getting fewer and fewer. So what we were doing was buying old-fashioned, old-school shopping centers 
with lots of shops and replacing them with, say, a Walmart. So no shops. We bought an 18-acre site, 180,000 feet of mom-and-pop shops and a few anchors, tore the whole thing down and built a Walmart on the whole site. And we've done that, I don't know, a dozen times, knocking out smaller buildings, putting in larger ones. We just opened the grand opening of a shopping center on this dirt that we own for eight and a half years. Six and a half acres in the old days, that, that would have been a 30,000 foot market, 30,000 feet of shops. The one we literally opened this week, 65,000 foot market and one 6,000 foot shop building with just two tenants, Chase Bank and Pete's Coffee, a regional coffee player here. So there are these title shifts to business that you have to be part of. You say, okay, how can I modernize this? But again, the good news about a rehab deal is that unless you're in a particularly difficult city, the city planning departments will say, oh, you're going to put $10 million into this old wreck. Great. When can you start? You don't have to go through two years of public hearings and everything else. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. One of the hardest tasks to balance while scaling your real estate investing business is accounting. Well, realestateaccounting.co takes care of the numbers for you so you can grow your business and revenue. REA helps property managers and investors save time and money by automating back office, financial, admin, and accounting. Starting is quick and seamless from accounts payable to reconciliations, taxes, and reporting. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever to find out how REA clients save on average 30% by leveraging their accounting services versus hiring in-house. With CPAs on staff and being owner-operators themselves, REA knows the challenges of your growing real estate business. Try it risk-free at realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. And remember to mention the Best Ever podcast sent you to receive up to $1,800 towards onboarding and services. That's realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever. If you're not sure where to start investing or need help taking the next step, mentorship and coaching is one of the best ways to get going. Think Multifamily is a leading apartment acquisition and education company who provides true one-on-one -on -one coaching to help you invest for your family's future. Their servant leadership approach will guide you to successfully scale your real estate business or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved. John, with the Walmart deals, I'm assuming Walmart was already interested in that tract of land. Yeah. Back to the great advantage of doing retail. We've been working with Walmart, my firm, since they first came to California in 92. So maybe we've done 15 Walmart deals. So we have a strong relationship with them. So yeah, it, probably each of those deals, we knew the Walmart that we bought we knew that Walmart was interested in advance. They confirmed it and they said, sure, John, we like you. We like working with you. You tie this side up or we'll do a deal with you. It's good to have a tenant in your hip pocket if you're going to do this stuff. Yeah, good to know that. So those strip malls where there's an anchor and a whole L-shaped line of other retailers, going forward, is that not what they're building? That's not what's in right now? That's right. 
what's being built right now are far fewer shops. Is that because of people's attention spans a little bit? Because if you're going to JCPenney and there's a hobby store over there, and we'll swing by and check it out. But now it seems like everybody wants things now. Attention spans are short. We're in and out of there. We're not going to interior malls. We want to drive up, go in the store, come back out, and leave. Is that part of it, the attention spans? or What's happening where those are no longer in favor? A lot of things are happening right now. But you and I, in order to go to a mall, we have to say, well, if I just need a new T-shirt or a sweater or a pair of shoes, I can order it online. So I'm going to go to the mall because there are nice restaurants there. There was this whole shift toward experiential malls, which worked really well until the virus came down. But if the mall has an ice skating rink, if the mall has a big gym, if the mall has uh, trampolines, if the mall has some vitality to it, it'll work. But if it's just a straight up hard goods, soft goods, Sears, a lot of these old tenants, unfortunately, they were roadkill before the virus. They were roadkill before the 2009 collapse. If they're still around, but they're going down because there's no reason to go to them. Fortunately for us, <laughs> it's only half a joke. I discovered we were in the essential retail business about a year ago because our centers are supermarkets and drugstores and drive throughs and gas stations and banks. In fact, probably 75% of our holdings are comprised of those categories. And they all did as well, if not better, in the downturn. So the downturn, the COVID downturn. Mm -hmm. So the COVID has accelerated the existing trends. The tenants that were on life support before the virus are definitely not coming back. It just kind of accelerated that. I wouldn't want to be in the business today of building big boxes for hard and soft goods tenants right now. Because again, too easy to get on the internet. So with the vacant Sears, the vacant JCPenney's, do you think those will be teardowns? Or are there any opportunities for investors to buy and repurpose them effectively? Yeah, the question is, you walk outside your front door in the town that you're thinking about buying a mall. And if there's no dirt anywhere, here in Palo Alto, I'm sure most of your listeners know, it is the brains, if not the heart of Silicon Valley. We're on this peninsula. There's basically no land available. So if you can find an old mall here, you can easily repurpose it. You can add a hotel. You can add multifamily housing. You can add for sale housing. You can take a 40-acre, 400,000-foot center, cut it down to 10 acres of 100,000 feet of retail, and then add all these other uses. If, on the other hand, not to pick on my hometown, but it's a dumb. If you're in Southern California in some woebegotten desert town and you look out the front door and all you see are millions of acres of raw land, there's nothing you can do with those old malls because it's cheaper by far to build fresh than it is to go into one of those old malls and tear it down. Because even if I give you the mall ash, it's expensive to tear those things down and then you may have toxic issues and everything else. So I don't know what the answer is for a lot of them. The B and C malls and B and C cities, I don't know. Maybe the, the cities take them over for government offices or the community colleges take them over or the hospitals. But I would not recommend that anybody get in there and try and retool them as retail. Interesting. And often they require multi-million dollar roofs because they've been neglected for so many years as well. The other problem with enclosed malls is the operating costs are so expensive. Open air, you don't have to heat it, you don't have to air condition it, you don't have to have janitors policing the areas. Again, the retailers don't care whether it's rent or operating expenses. All they care is what their gross monthly amount is. 
So the extent that you can deliver a retail setting without all those extra costs, you can make it up in rent. And with COVID, what do you think about these suburban downtowns? My opinion is people during COVID did not go to city centers, but they went down the street to their neighborhood downtown where there's local restaurants, bars. Do you think those areas will continue to thrive? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the biggest loser in the virus is the elevator. <laughs> you know, it's, it, I'm serious. So Salesforce Tower is a building that looks like it's in downtown San Francisco. It looks like it's half again taller than any other building in town. And, and the elevators aren't that large. And so if we're on the 80th floor or whatever, and we have to do a five-minute ride every day, do we really want to do that? So I think you're right. The work-at-home phenomenon, I think, is overplayed. People will go back to the office. But if you and I own a company and we could have 10,000 feet in Salesforce Tower on a 40,000 foot floor plate so that our employees are sharing bathrooms with three other tenants, common bathrooms, or back to your point, we could have a 10,000 foot building, a two-story walk-up in a downtown where there are no elevators and where we can control the health protocols, where are we going to sign a lease? Because we do own suburban offices as well. And I've made a, <laughs> let's just say, educated killing. guess. And, well, not a killing, but <laughs> we're betting that these suburban downtowns like Palo Alto will do fine. People still need to congregate in offices, but I don't think they want to go into the CBDs. Because then how am I going to get there? Gee, I've got to ride the subway or the bus. And then I have to ride this elevator up. Now, it could be that the vaccinations solve everything, and that's no longer an issue. But I think there's always going to be a lingering fear here. What happens five years from now when the next virus rolls down the pipe? We're in a small office here in downtown Palo Alto. It's just us. So when the governor mandated shelter in place, we revised that slightly to shelter in office. (laughs) So we're here, my partners and I. So we've been here the whole time. But Ash, had we been in a high-rise office building, we would have been locked out of our offices for this last year. People aren't going to forget that. That's a good point. John, you've given us a pretty good idea of the retail, the malls, the high-end retail scenario. What about the downtown suburban office buildings? Do you think they'll be repurposed into apartments, live, work, play centers, co-working centers, or do you think there's just not much of a future for those? No, actually, I think they're just the opposite. I think there's a pretty good future for vibrant suburban areas. You pick it in Ohio. I I could pick it here. Essentially, just outside of the major CBDs, any of these towns, I think those suburban offices, as people move out of the cities, I think they'll be fine. So I don't think they need to be repurposed. I think they'll be used as office. I think big companies will say, okay, the back of the house guys, the accountants or the software engineers, they can work from home. Some of the accounting department has to get together. HR has to get together. The marketing guys, the sales guys, they definitely have to get together. So I think rather than have this huge floor plate in the CBD, they'll say, okay, this division, this group of ours will work in this small town, in this walk-up building that we control. But downtown Cincinnati, the high rises down there, You don't see them getting repurposed anytime soon? What I think happens ultimately, and this may take five or seven years, as people flee the downtowns, and this is absolutely happening in San Francisco, rents have dropped, real rents, forget what you're reading in the papers, rents have really dropped on the order of 40%. 
Once rents drop low enough so it becomes a value proposition, then back to Ash and John as being a, running a, a company, we'll say, screw it. <laughs> it is too good a deal. And then it'll happen like New York kind of went off the tracks in the 70s. When things get low enough so that the fun, artsy people, the artists, the, the writers, the actors, the waiters, and rents have dropped here 20 25%. When office rents and apartment rents drop low enough, you get the gentrification effect. People will move back to the downtowns because they'll say, okay, it's actually cheaper here than out in the suburbs. So tide goes in, tide goes out. I don't know anything about Cincinnati other than that it's close to Kentucky. But, so there's not going to be an apocalypse. It, it's no, going to come back at some point. It is. And again, I think the work from home, it was maybe 5% before the virus. And maybe it settles at 15 or 20%. But you can't get promoted from home. <laughs> from a Zoom meeting? <laughs> from a Zoom meeting, yeah. You can't meet the love of your life. You can't go hang out and have beers with your friends or, or play on the team basketball league. I think people come back. Working at home is fine for certain people and for certain age cohorts. Like you find for us, but if you're 25 and ambitious, working from home isn't going to cut it. That's so. a great point. What about those class B, C shopping centers that don't have anchor tenants? They just have mom and pop tenants. There's four to six spots in there in suburban yeah. areas. We call those strip centers where it's maybe five or 10,000 feet and it's a nail salon. It's a, a barbecue pickup place. It's a hair. Nails, they're, yeah. they're all fine. The personal services in my world were wiped out. Dry cleaners, hair salons, nail salons, legitimate massage. They were all just totally shut down. But they are also, though, internet bulletproof. You can't get a manicure online, right? You can't get your hair colored online. So those little strip centers, if they're well located, they'll be fine. Now, the landlords probably lost a year's worth of rent on some of them because they're essentially wonderful, hardworking immigrants that, that run those little shops. They didn't have any money to pay us. We just let them sit there. There was no other demand for it. But once they're back, once everybody's getting a haircut again, they'll be back. So I'm not worried about the little strip centers. The large enclosed B and C malls, those are dead malls walking. They're a problem. Yeah. And I'd love to hear your take on restaurants, both chains and the mom and pops. Sure, I have a few opinions on that. <laughs> so the thing I love about business is it's always different. It's like a kaleidoscope. All of the little pieces are there, but you shake a kaleidoscope each time it comes out different. So in prior recessions, we kind of all went down together and all went up together in, in retail. This time, there have been these runaway winners, home improvements. Home Depot, Lowe's, killing it. Everybody in the country is adding a bedroom. Supermarkets, killing it. But restaurants, you have to parse it even finer. drive through restaurants are absolutely golden, Ash. We have a jack-in-the-box at one of our centers. They reported the sales up 50% year over year. The tenants who are out there looking for new deals that we're talking to all want a drive through McDonald's is killing it. Carl's Jr. you have Carl's Jr. in Cincinnati? We don't. Okay, it's a sort of national chain. They have a lease that's coming up for renewal, not this year, not next year, three years out, and they're doing so well that they want to renew their lease. So they're fine. Pizza, if you think about it, ask yourself, if the good part about retail is that we're all consumers, we all shop, so we all have a pretty innate working understanding of retail. So pizza, you can pick up or have delivered 
and it tastes the same at home as it does. Maybe you throw it in the microwave for 10 seconds, but it tastes the same. Chinese food, pretty good that way. Mexican food, not so much. So the restaurants that lend themselves to takeout, they're doing well. Where they've been hurt for us and others, the fancy restaurants, particularly those without any outdoor seating, they're crushed. And a lot of them aren't coming back. If you're crazy enough to go to a fancy French restaurant, order the food, you get it home 45 minutes later, it tastes like Chef Boyardee, right? Yeah. It's the tastes are too subtle, the flavors are too nuanced, and it just all kind of collapses in on itself after a little while. All the emulsifications are gone. Exactly. <laughs> and the other thing, frankly, and this is true of all of retail, but particularly true of restaurants, we just had too damn many of them. We probably, before the pandemic, 10 years ago, I think we have on the order of 25 feet of retail space for every man, woman, child in the country whereas Europe is about two feet. We just have so much retail space. We're just wildly overbuilt. So each time something comes along, whether it's a downturn, whether it's the depredations of the internet or the virus, a little more retail goes away, but it should go away. We just have too much of it. So it's a bit of a reckoning. Understand. Yeah, exactly. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference February 24th through 26th back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at besteverconference.com. That's besteverconference.com. I know this isn't your area of expertise, but what about single family housing and the crazy prices, the lumber prices? What's your take on that? Yeah, we're in the middle of a bubble right now. People fleeing the CBD of Cincinnati or San Francisco or wherever, getting out of apartments, getting out of condos, sent back to the elevator. I don't want to ride that elevator anymore. So I want a three-bedroom house, four bedrooms. Actually, that fourth bedroom, at least here in California, has gone from optional to mandatory because people want an office. I think it lasts for a while. So our suburban single-family homes are, are on fire. I assume yours are as well. Yeah. I am tired of hearing about Austin and, and, and <laughs> Boise. Everybody from California is allegedly fleeing for those states. It'll settle out in a while. But the fact is that we are building several hundred thousand, if not close to a million, too few units a year of housing units. So if you're going to get into to real estate development to start, I would probably go into either apartments or single family housing. I guess probably the safest because the demand so strong and the supply is pretty limited. Do you think the bubbles on the verge of busting? My thought is no, because you have companies like Zillow and Blackstone just buying single family homes as fast as they can. So do you think this will continue to last for a while? For a while. I have just the world's worst crystal ball. <laughs> so I try to just stick with the present. So when we buy properties, it's not, gee, it'll be great in 10 years. If it doesn't work on day one, where we say we buy it and then it'll take us I'll make this up a year to get it entitled, a year to build, and another six months to have it fully leased. If we can't see that two and a half years from now, based on today's rent, it makes sense, we won't do it. You'll see a lot of guys, particularly 
these huge fancy projects where they say, well, in 10 years, it'll be a great deal. Well, they use the IRR. We think that's a big mistake. Just like the developer that bought the lane that had to sit on it for eight years. Yeah. Yeah, the holding costs. John, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Don't over leverage. We've lost money in real estate. If anyone ever tells you and they've done more than half a dozen deals that they haven't lost money in real estate, they're lying. Yeah. You know, real estate is just too hard. No matter how smart you are, something like the virus comes along. So all the guys who thought they were brilliant, like say with malls and, and who took out the old pennies of Kmart and put in an ice skating rink because it was experiential. Well, that was a brilliant move until a year ago. And then they lost money because of the virus. So the best way to lose money is to over leverage. I think Warren Buffett said it's almost impossible to lose money in real estate if you don't have any debt. Now, that's probably true. You can't do that starting out. If you start out like I did with zero money, you need to have debt. You need to have financial partners. But my best advice is to be careful with your leverage. Great advice. And also, yeah. No, go ahead, please. No, I mean, the, the other thing is, you know that old saw, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That's not a good <laughs> mantra for development. But first you don't succeed. If the neighborhood hates the, the 7-Eleven that you want to put on the corner, you better pivot and try something else. Another good way to lose money is to be a little too stubborn about what you want to do. John, with your 40 years of experience, would you recommend new people go into development or just investing in existing assets? When I was tell people, say, gee, John, I want to be like you and have a big development company, they say, okay, well, then start like I did. I started with a duplex when I was 24 that cost maybe $26,000, and I put a couple thousand down. Residential is the easiest, Ash, because the vacancy factor, and pretty much always, is zero. You can always clear an apartment. You can rent it for something. All the other disciplines, industrial, office, retail, hotel, and so on, they all have vacancy factors, and, and you can get caught. So my advice is always, if you want to do it, buy the worst house on the best block you can possibly afford in the best neighborhood. Buy something for 200000 in a block that's selling around 400000 If you can find it, put 100000 in and you've made a $100,000 profit. That's the way to start. With mine, I think, this is trying my memory, but I think I put down two to 3000 at most. I got lucky on an upturn. The one that I bought for 25, I sold for 60 a year later. And then with that 60, so I, and then I had like 30, 32. I bought a fourplex for 60. And again, a year later, sold that for 120. So that initial two or $3,000 of my capital became $90,000. Just for the record, I've never done a deal <laughs> since then with that kind of return on capital. But that's how I'd start. I'd start out small and actually I'd keep my day job and do it on the side. Great advice. Let's take it a step further. Let's say you build a bit of a portfolio, a bit of a nest egg, and you then have the opportunity to continue to buy value add or existing strip centers or develop your own. Where would you recommend people turn to development or just buying existing assets? One of the reasons we're talking today is I've written a book. And in fact, I just finished the second edition of it. That question came up in a talk I gave, and the kid just stopped me, and I had to admit, we don't have a strategy. It's when it's come along, and then I went back and looked at our portfolio, 
And about 75% of the time, we built ground up. And about 25% of the time, we took advantage of what's called an opportunistic bias. And then I parsed that a little finer and said, well, what was my win-loss record? And oddly enough, it turned out to be about the same. So that would tell you, gee, then I ought to just buy existing stuff. The problem is it's very hard to find existing deals because everybody's out there competing for them that are really strong deals. As much trouble as developing is, it's a lot harder. There's a lot less competition. The returns are significantly higher if you do it right. So I'm happy to buy existing, and we've done essentially just as well with existing. So I'd say case by case. The old saw is in a really hot market when everything is selling for well over replacement cost, you have to build. And in a down market, when everything is just tumbling and you can buy for less than replacement cost, why would you build? Buy something that's existing. That's a great metric. So, John, Uh, you've written a book. Tell me more about that. I write a monthly column for the San Francisco Business Times. And at some point along the way, over the last 10 years, seven years ago, someone said, gee, John, you ought to make a book out of this. So I wrote a book called Making It in Real Estate, Starting Out as a Developer. Basically, starting out with that duplex I mentioned and how you can grow that carefully, slowly, conservatively over years into a large development company. The book has done much to my surprise and gratification quite well. In fact, it was my publisher's bestseller. So a year ago, January, they said, hey, how about writing another book? And I said, no. Back to the question you asked me about buy versus develop. I said, a lot of issues have come up. I'll rewrite the book. I'll add chapters to it. So we came out with a second edition in the late fall, and it's selling really well. And it's now required reading at Cornell, Georgetown, the University of Cincinnati, Cal, Vanderbilt. I spoke virtually at Vanderbilt. It's done really quite well. And I think whatever it costs, six or 10 bucks, I think there's more than that worth of advice in it. If it's anything like this conversation, it's an amazing book, I'm sure. And I'll definitely yeah, get well, that. <laughs> the guys who love it say, gee, John, I like it because the chapters are short. Because they started out as newspaper essays. And each one has pretty much a single point in there. And I think it's quite useful. And I'd be delighted to have your listeners take a look at it. That is great because what I've found for commercial real estate books are either very dry, outdated textbooks or books written by beginners that just want to get published. So having something like this, I think would be amazing. And I will definitely get that. Yeah. The difference is I actually did it. I'm not a journalist writing a book. I'm not a... (laughs) I'm talking about real world experience over four years and it's tough. And I point out in the book, I think, unfortunately, the vast majority of people who try to become developers fail at it. It is a hard business, but there are a lot of ways you can reduce that risk. Again, back to my earlier point, don't over leverage your properties. John, are you ready for the lightning round? Yeah, sure. Shoot. Let's do it. John, what's the best ever book you recently read? I knew you were going to ask that. It's called The Psychology of Money by a guy named Morgan Housel, H-O-U-S-E-L. And I think he's a genius because (laughs) everything he says is what I agree with. But it's not a real estate book. It's an investing book. And it's an investing book about taking the very long term. He makes the point that Warren Buffett isn't year by year the world's best investor. It's that Warren Buffett has been investing for 70 years. From the time he was 15 until now he's in his mid-80s. And Just by investing and staying in the market like a farmer, year in, year out, just planting the crops, he's produced these fabulous returns. Anyway, very interesting book for somebody starting out. That is great. 
John, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Locally, we give back a ton. I have found that charity, just like electricity, tends to attenuate the farther it is away from you. So if you're sending money to Africa, that's nice, but you just don't know how it's going to get spent, whether it's going to get intercepted. If you can get involved yourself with local charities in every town, whether it's Cincinnati or Palo Alto or New York City, doesn't matter. Every town, there are plenty of local charities that need help. If you can get involved personally and get on the board, show up, give more than just your check. Checks are great, but the more you get involved, the more you understand, the better use your money can be put to. Somebody pointed out it's just as hard to give away money well as it is to earn it, and there's a lot of truth in that. That is great advice. And John, how can the best ever listeners get a hold of you? I'm on LinkedIn, John McNellis, or my email address is john at mcnellis.com. Unless you happen to be a Nigerian prince offering $20 million, I'll respond to your emails. John, I can't thank you enough for all of your advice today. We started out with simply talking about developing strip centers, and we pretty much hit every commercial asset out there. We got your outlook on what the future holds just an amazing episode. You're one of the godfathers of commercial real estate with all of your experience. So thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been fun. Yeah. Have a best ever day. Okay. Thank you.